In 18th and 19th century Europe, culture was associated with the past. Artistic and literary traditions were steeped in history. Neoclassical movements took inspiration from classical antiquity. Romanticism and Gothic revival drew from the medieval period. Archaeologists uncovered ancient ruins. Artists reproduced sculptures and paintings. And architects constructed buildings with the simplicity and grandeur of ancient Greece and Rome. All of those currents that were so central to 19th century culture and that also gave rise to institutions like national libraries, like national museums, like national archives, institutions devoted not only to conserving the past, but worshiping the past. That's Jeffrey Schnapp, a professor of Italian and comparative literature at Harvard University. These movements in art, literature, and architecture held up history as the ideal and praised it with almost a religious fervor. It's against all of that that futurism launches its call for revolution. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. In this episode, I talk to Professor Jeffrey Schnapp about the Manifesto of Futurism. The Manifesto of Futurism was published in 1909 on the front page of Le Figaro, the oldest daily newspaper in France. Its author was Filippo Tommaso Marinetti, a 33-year-old Italian writer who was born in Alexandria, Egypt in 1876 and was educated in Egypt and France. With his Manifesto of Futurism, Marinetti launched a new artistic movement that opposed what he called pastism, the worship of the past. Futurism wants to wipe the slate clean. And to wipe the slate clean, it needed to create a kind of sensational effect. And that sensational effect required a media platform that would have the level of energy associated with it and closeness to the immediate moment of reading of the manifesto. The newspaper was the perfect medium. It operated less like the books of the past and more like the social media networks of today. It's important to remember that daily newspapers were the closest thing to a live medium in 1909. This is before radio becomes a, a mass medium, long before television, of course. Uh, the front pages of the important dailies really were about as close as you could get to real-time coverage. And therefore, the newspaper is not just an accidental feature of the manifesto. It's the very place, the theater within which the manifesto form is born in its contemporary form. Manifestos had historically been associated with religious movements and especially divisions in mainstream religions. But typically they were forms of polite argument. The topics evolved over time from mostly religious manifestos to literary manifestos that argued for certain artistic philosophies. But the polite model of argument largely continued. The Futures Manifesto completely transforms that rhetoric. It is a kind of argument with a hammer, but the hammer is not just the violence of the tone, the violence of the propositions, the emphasis on provocation, but also the use of media as a key vector, the media itself as integrated into the language of provocation. Marinetti harnessed the language of advertisements and machinery and with them built a new form of writing. It's a text that really establishes the manifesto as the dominant form that argument will take over the course of the subsequent century. Manifestos from the Futurist Manifesto in 1909 to the present really become the common currency of radical argument for the century. 
The Manifesto of Futurism outlines 11 principles. Point one, we intend to sing the love of danger, the habit of energy and fearlessness. Two, courage, audacity, and revolt will be the essential elements of our poetry. Three, up to now, literature has exalted a pensive immobility, ecstasy, and sleep. We intend to exalt aggressive action, a feverish insomnia, erasure's stride, the mortal leap, the punch, and the slap. Four, we affirm that the world's magnificence has been enriched by a new beauty. Much of the thrust of the manifesto is an effort to attack and propose the dismantling of institutions associated with memory, with the past, with the worship of the past. What's striking is the Renaissance could be seen as a moment in which the obeisance to the past is ruptured to some degree. But the way you're describing all the subsequent artistic movements, cultural movements that we're aware of, most of them were some kind of revival or renegotiation with a previous form, an acknowledgement that, well, the masters, you know, we can imitate and maybe do something new variation. Marinetti seems interested in something radically different. And that seems to be partly why he says, you know, an automobile is more beautiful than the victory at Samothrace, that there's new creations that have um, almost a kind of enchanted quality to them that we can we can celebrate as our own. Indeed. Uh, he was persuaded, as many people were persuaded at the turn of the 20th century, that this whole world of machinery that was changing the world of work, that was changing the way people moved around the world, that was altering, even beginning to alter aspects of everyday life, which for him is really symbolized, embodied by the automobile, by the rise of these motorized vehicles that are suddenly terrorizing the inhabitants of major cities, that this mechanical civilization represented a complete annihilation, a transformation of all of those currents from the past, and a call, a kind of summons to create new forms of culture that respond to the opportunities and challenges of the machine age. To demonstrate this transformation, Marinetti told a story. The story that the manifesto is framed by is the story of an automobile accident where he and his driver go driving through the streets of Milan and end up in a ditch. Their uh, car overturns and it's rising up out of that mud, that kind of industrial mud in the suburbs of Milan, that he becomes a new man, like Paul on the road to Damascus. He becomes the new converted, futurized Filippo Tommaso Marinetti. And it's in that context that he proclaims these principles, which are the founding principles of futurism, 11 principles that are, in a sense, the, the kind of rules that are laid out with a hammer to demolish forms of past culture and the worship of the past, and to put in their place a whole series of new principles that are focused on the new, the surprising, the extreme, the unexpected, the destructive. But destructive for him always means the creative, that which will give rise to the new. The image of creation or newness through destruction, part of this is a generational image that we have to die for our successors to come forward. And by fetishizing the past, you're suppressing life. And I can't help but think of sort of Nietzschean themes, that life is greater than any abstract principle of, I don't know, love, justice, truth. It's just pure life. And the manifesto itself does praise a kind of 
aggression and violence even. Indeed. And violence is viewed in the manifesto, and, and it, it's, it shapes the language of the manifesto as purgative, as uh, cleansing, as creative, as generative. Um, uh, just to quote one example from the manifesto, point number seven is, there is no more beauty except in struggle. <laughs> that kind of sums up right there the, the basic ethos, which is that struggle is the ultimate expression of vitality. And there is a kind of vitalist model that I think you're alluding to in your question that informs Marinetti's, I guess I'd call it a kind of metaphysics, that, um, that struggle is integral to nature and that art emerges from processes of struggle with the limits of material, with the limits of the body, with the limits of human capacity. But I think what's crucial to that notion is also a new concept of beauty itself, of the aesthetic. You mentioned this famous passage where he, he proclaims a race car. Notice it's a race car. It's not an ordinary automobile. I'm not race talking about a BUA. <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's not a Model T. It's a race car adorned with huge tubes like, like with the explosive breath of a serpent, you know, kind of animalizes the figure. He says that that automobile, that throbbing, roaring automobile is more beautiful than the victory of Samothrace. Well, the victory of Samothrace was, of course, one of the iconic sculptures from Greek antiquity. It decorated perhaps the most important atrium within the Louvre Museum at the time. But what interests him in the race car is not that it's beautiful in, a, in using the same aesthetic canons as you would use to evaluate the beauty of a sculpture like the victory of Samothrace, but rather um, that beauty is defined not by a series of ideal, abstract, formal, geometrical, universal principles, but rather by intensity. The scale of intensity is the scale of the aesthetic, of a kind of cultural experience, if you like. And in doing so, what he's doing is substituting all of the models of aesthetic appraisal that had shaped the whole prior history of culture, which were all about balance and equilibrium and asymmetry and shaping objects, to certain kinds of canons of uh, mathematical harmony, for example, think of musical concepts or think of the architectural concepts that are based on uh, notions like the golden section. Marinetti's argument is exactly the opposite. Its intensity is the measure of the success of an artwork, for example, or of a political movement for that matter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Impact, intensity, those are the measurements of modern culture, of modern civilization not the canons of classical harmony or beauty. I'm sure living in, in Greece and Italy especially, but Europe in general, in comparison to maybe some of the industrial centers of England and the United States, must have felt staid and slow and sclerotic, uh, maybe politically, maybe culturally. Italy, for him, was the country of reference. It was the audience, the ultimate audience of the manifesto right from the start. And the Italian landscape is a landscape where the past is, is so vividly present, like a kind of palimpsest, uh, because the past encompasses everything from, you know, Greek and Roman and Etruscan remains to many, many other layers of history, all of which coexist with the present. And this urge to destroy, to demolish, to create the tabula rasa um, could only be so hyperbolic 
in a context, I think, where there was such an overwhelming sensation of the weight of the past, of the presence of the past, and um, of it being a burdensome presence as well as an animating presence. And so there's no question that the hyperbolic nature of this genre that Marinetti forges, uh, which is the manifesto, really has almost as a prerequisite um, coming from a landscape like the urban landscape of the great Italian cities. And Venice, for him, became a symbol of everything that was wrong about the 19th century and more broadly about the worshipful attitude of the world towards the past. As Marinetti presented it, he and his fellow futurists were crushing the past to pave the way for the future. But the irony is that Marinetti came from the very culture that he was critiquing. His career was launched largely as a kind of decadentist poet. He had very close connections to the circle of symbolist, late symbolist poets that he uh, denounces, actually, in uh, subs- several subsequent futurist literary uh, manifestos. Um, And out of that experience, futurism really was born as a kind of revolt from within, you might say. I think what's at the core of his poetic career is this transition from late symbolism, which is a kind of expression of a sort of late romanticism, you might say, to a poetry that aspires to become the poetry of the age of industry, a poetry of the machine age and to find ways not only to bring poetry into the streets, so to speak, but also to change the nature of language, the range of expressivity that is available to poetry and to all art forms by literally contaminating them with other forms, the sounds of motors, to bring noise into poetry, to use typography to disrupt the harmony of the page, that harmony that took centuries of work from Gutenberg to the industrialization of printing in the 19th century, to blow all of that up in the name of creating new forms of expression that would be adequate to the nature of the machine age, which is an age where not only are human beings constantly engaged in interacting with machines, where the life of machines is part of the life of society, but also where machines have agency. Machines are actors, and machine language becomes part of the language of poetry itself as a way of expanding its contours. Um, So it's that contamination of realms in the name of breaking with old molds and bringing all forms of human expression into the present and thereby into the future, that represents the, the core ambition and a real break with where he came from as, a, as a, a poet. The manifesto embraced a different, not traditionally poetic form of publishing, the newspaper. What he saw in the media sphere of 1909 was that a new kind of set of forces were being placed together. One, the newspaper is already a multi-channel kind of platform. You have multiple stories, multiple typefaces. You have the beginnings of visual and verbal intermixing. You have the beginnings of photography being intersecting narrative, storytelling, journalistic accounts. And also, especially important, the use of telegraphy to relay stories across the world in real time and therefore 
networks that are enabling the newspaper front page to be increasingly a place where stuff that is happening now or that was just emerging or just happening is all co-present at the same time. That's the laboratory that futurism is trying to create a new culture within. And it's the laboratory within which 20th century and 21st century culture continues to be created. But to get there, culture, as well as forms of persuasion, had to change their style. And the founding manifesto of futurism, it enacts that shift in style. There's lots of parts of it that belong to the past, but at the core of it, what's kept it alive, what's made it one of those really important seminal documents is the way it codified a new style of communication and of argument. How did this text change media practices in ways that are still with us? What are the patterns that are recognizable? A couple of things come to mind right away. Um, This is a text woven out of slogans. It is designed not to be read the way you would read a conventional scientific or scholarly article or a long-form form of argumentation, but rather to be read as a construction made out of snippets. Therefore, it doesn't make arguments the way that a conventional scientific or scholarly argument would be made with logical steps leading in a kind of smooth progression to some kind of culminating hypothesis. On the contrary, it proclaims. It violates the rules of evidence. It makes counterfactual assertions. It deliberately engages in polemic for polemic's sake. I would cite as an example of that um, one of its most famous passages, that one of the passages that really stirred up readers, both in France and throughout the world, because the manifesto was immediately translated into about 25 languages within two years of its initial publication, which was proposal number 10, which is, reads as follows. We demand the destruction of museums, libraries, academies of all kinds, and will combat moralism, feminism, and each cowardly form of opportunism and utilitarianism. Uh, That's a mouthful of a list. You notice, not only are we going to destroy three of the great defining institutions of the 19th century, these national institutions that gathered books, artworks, and historical records, But also, we're going to combat what he calls moralism, what he calls feminism, and uh, all forms of cowardly opportunism and utilitarianism. (laughs) Um, It's not a cohesive (laughs) proposal. And most of the proposals are similarly interestingly cobbled together to get the maximum reaction on the part of the audience, but not to make an argument in in a kind of logical sense. They deliberately... Uh, create a a different logic, which is more that of advertising, I would say. Very concise, compact forms of communication. The logo. Just do it. Just do it. Exactly. What does that mean? It means everything and nothing. (laughs) Uh, the, The swoosh, same. It's that compression of communication and the transportability of the, the short forms across platforms, across conversations, across domains that makes this a very, very powerful communication strategy. Is Marinetti, do you think, either accommodating himself to the belief that we're driven more by the passions and by the heart than by the brain? Or does he want to live in a world in which we do? And so he tailors his rhetoric to match that kind of, you know, media or or rhetorical culture. He 
like many critics of the society of this period, um, had a deep aversion to what was referred to then as positivism, to the models of science, kind of responsible social beliefs. And, and the revolution futurism is launching and that the ism stands for is really a revolt against those forms. So intensifying embodiment, getting close to the gut, away from the brain, away from contemplative models into active, hyperactive even models of being, for him is really essential to the transformation of society and culture that he's trying to enact in the arts. Initially, it's the focus of futurism is sharply on the arts. Gradually, it expands out to all domains of contemporary life. And sensationalism, which is a word that um, we continue to associate with the press, you know, the tabloid press in particular, really comes from this period. The emergence of a media sphere that's all about that kind of quick sort of like he headline that grabs you, uh, that, whose ultimate and true audience is the distracted reader, not the dedicated reader, not the contemplative, quiet reader who's sitting in a library or in a gentleman's study, but rather somebody on the bus walking down a street, seeing a broadside on a wall, a kind of reading situation like that. That's the world that these new forms that futurism wants to incubate and promote in the world of poetry, in the world of the arts, in the world of performance, in the world of architecture, and eventually in all kinds of other domains of everyday life. And they are closely associated with getting away from a kind of cerebralist culture, which was felt to be somehow deeply implicated in the decline of culture and civilization in the second half of the 19th century. Even as Marinetti called for a new, future-focused movement, he acknowledged that his own work would one day represent the past. In order for his movement to succeed, the writers and artists who came later would have to displace him. The manifesto closes with an invitation, literally an invitation for a next generation to come and bury the very revolution that the manifesto is proclaiming on the front page of a newspaper. Even as that revolution is barely starting, already the moment where it will be overcome by a subsequent revolution is anticipated. And I think that is a profound expression of what strikes me as really radical, but also uh, makes this a, a, a kind of monumental gesture with respect to forms of uh, cultural polemic and conversation in the whole subsequent history of, uh, of culture and politics. Yeah, I think what's striking to me was he wasn't saying we have developed the final, the final art form. And this is the best and will stand the test of time. It was, we've got 10 years of creativity. And then when we're 40, we're done. You know, he says, let's see, the oldest of us is 30. So we have at least a decade for finishing our work. When we are 40, other younger and stronger men will probably throw us in the wastebasket like useless manuscripts. We want it to happen. I mean, that's amazing. And it's, I think because of that, consistent with a, a kind of generative uh, cycle of destruction and and rebirth, um, which is kind of extraordinary. And I, I couldn't help but feel in this um, a really, I think, probably a unique orientation away from respect and veneration for elders and their wisdom towards youth and their creativity. I mean, this is, to me, this document fits in San Francisco rather well. And, and I wonder, you know... It, 
could you contextualize this or place this in conversation with like when did youth culture start to acquire some of these qualities that are still with us today? I mean, ageism is really <laughs> devastating for many people in the country. And and he's saying, well, that's how it should be. We should be thrown away into the garbage. Indeed. I think it's really in the context of these kinds of of, of revolts, of which futurism is just one, but um, but it's a significant one. Also in the context of other radical political movements of the same era, the anarchist movement, parts of the socialist movement as well, were very focused on creating a new kind of type of humanity. The, the idea of a new human subject, a new citizen, a new political subject um, is integral to many of the revolutionary doctrines that define the history of the 20th century. And uh, futurism is aligned with those trends and precisely the rhetoric you were alluding to, this rhetoric of change for change's sake, of constant transformation, of one wave displacing the next, places the focus of the action of history on the stage of history on youth. Marinetti's legacy lives on, both through the futurist movement and the manifesto form. The movement continued until 1944, really until his death, and has continued to have a huge impact on the different cultural, political, avant-garde movements of the post-World War II period to the, to the present. There are manifestos written pretty much for every single cultural and political movement you can think of from this time to, to the present, including cybernetic manifestos. Uh, I myself have written several manifestos in different read your manifesto. kinds of activities <laughs> I've been involved in. It just became a, a genre that is a cross between theoretical and philosophical and critical argument and advertising and pamphleting. It's a tool that's just part of the core toolkit of modern culture. The Manifesto of Futurism channeled the power and imagery of machinery, destruction, and progress to shift the creative focus from classical antiquity to the innovations of the day. But the text also helped create a broader change in how we think, write, and speak today. In some ways, we're all futurists now. Writ Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Liza French. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. Join our discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what other listeners are saying. You can also find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.